again we bring greetings to you in the name of Jesus, the one who was in the beginning, and the one who still is, and the Bible tells us in Revelation, who is to come. And I trust tonight that all of us have been touched by those three facts, that he is, he has been, and he will be. And we're looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ will return. I trust that this weekend we've maybe gotten a little glimpse of the fact that he wants us to remain faithful. Revelation is so clear. The ones who overcome, the ones who remain faithful will be the ones that have a right to the tree of life. And and there's different promises given in Revelation. I do want to say thank you to you as a church. It's been a blessing to, to be among you. Um, my nerves have been working overtime some of the time, but uh, that's not because of you. <laughs> and uh, we've really enjoyed uh, seeing you again. We want to encourage you, stay faithful. Stay pressing toward the mark. There's a lot of distractions. We're living in a day, it seems like, of unprecedented distractions. On every hand, day after day after day, we would have opportunity to take our eyes off the goal, but God will give us the grace. And tonight as we think about one more topic or one more message on courageous leadership, I'd like to just think about the the two words again, courageous and leadership. Courageous has the idea of a mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger fear, or difficulty. It has the idea of staying the course. Many have, have quit the course because things got too difficult and too danger, but the, dangerous, but the Bible calls us to stay the course. Again, the idea of overcoming. And then leadership is the art of motivating a group of people to act toward achieving a common goal. And we talked different times this weekend on the goal, the goal that I'm convinced God wants us to stay to keep in focus, and that is the goal of getting to heaven. God called his people out of Egypt and into Canaan many, many years ago. Today, he's calling his people out of the world. He's calling them out of the world here, and we'd like to think about that at the beginning of the message tonight. But he's also calling them to make their calling and election sure that one day when Jesus Christ returns, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. The Bible, the New Testament would call us to watch and pray that we be found ready. And tonight as we think of society and we think about that term leadership and and we think about the word motivating, I wonder, are we living lives today that is motivating or turning off society? And I've seen plenty of both. And maybe we'll get to that a little later. But I'd like to think here at the opening, before we get too far into that, about our, our Lord and Savior and how society would have viewed him. Society must have, would most certainly have classified him as a failure. Forsaken by friends, mocked by enemies, with virtually nothing on earth to call his own, and the few things he did have, We're gambled for at the bitter end. Sometimes we fail to stop and think about what life was really like for Jesus Christ, for the Savior of mankind. 
God could have brought him in here in all the pomp and power and royalty he wanted to, but he chose to bring him in the most humble of settings, and Jesus succumbed to death with people gambling for the few things that he could call his own on the earth. And to the delight of many, he succumbed to the cruelest of deaths. But friends, tonight there's something so beautiful about this because his death spelled victory like no one de- else's death before or after has ever spelled. It literally opened the door to freedom for mankind. And tonight I wonder, are we rejoicing and living in that freedom, or is life just something that we just kind of go through the motions, and we keep our playing, and we keep our fun, and we keep all the other things, but we're forgetting what Jesus Christ would have us to be in society. We cannot help by the fact that we're in society. We can't help what happens as we rub shoulders with society. Now, there's something that, that I find really, really encouraging, too. And I, I spoke earlier that we had communion last Sunday. And, and in the message, we, we referred to the fact that Jesus' disciples all forsook him. And after the message, I, in fact, I wish this minister would have just stopped me during the message and said this. Because I think it speaks of something that is noteworthy, and that is the fact that virtually all those disciples, now not quite all of them, but virtually all those disciples that forsook Jesus ended up dying martyrs' deaths for his sake. Now you talk about motivating a people, and I understand, I don't think you and I would have fared any better in that culture, in that context, in that setting where they were sure Jesus was here to to kind of set things straight and take take over and all at once he's in a position where they realize he's going to be put up on a cross to die and even though they had said they would never forsake him the bible records the sad fact that they all forsook him and fled but friends almost every one of those disciples came back and died a martyr's death for jesus sake now you talk about motivating power and i wonder what our life is speaking what are we doing to encourage, to motivate, and to influence others to follow Christ. When we talk about courageous leadership, and we referred to Moses, we've referred to Joshua, we've referred to Paul, we've referred to Timothy, we've referred to different ones, but there is only one that we need to, to pattern our lives after, and I'm convinced all those ones we referred to in earlier messages would say the same thing, we must refer to Jesus Christ. When you talk about courageous leaders, leaders that have been willing to give it their all for the sake of what they really believed in, Jesus Christ. And there's an ultimate picture of courage that I find in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 to 7. And this is the picture of Jesus. It says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And you cannot miss the picture of courage in those verses. Jesus said he set his face like a flint, and he knows that he shall not be ashamed. Now let's think about this title tonight, Courageous Leadership in Society, and I'll confess I had to think it through a little and I wasn't quite sure what direction to take it because I'm confident the leadership here that that came up with the title was not looking for ways to be a good mayor. So I've taken the liberty, and I hope I'm not taking too much liberty, but I've reworded the title just a little bit. 
but courageous leaders in promoting God's principles in society. Courageous leaders in promoting God's principles in society. And there's a message tonight that I think you and I need to make sure we're fully aware of. And that's a message that Jesus promoted so strongly. And you, you kind of see it getting stronger as he's coming to the end of his ministry on earth. And that is the fact that there are two kingdoms. And it, it will be so, so critical. We want to talk about separation at the beginning here. But it will be so, so critical that you and I are found in the correct kingdom when Jesus Christ comes back. Because if we're found in the wrong kingdom, if somehow we're building in the wrong kingdom, it's not going to be good news. We're going to regret it for all of eternity. And Jesus said that there's two kingdoms. He made sure there was a message that the the disciples got before he left. We turn to the New Testament to John chapter 15. There's so many verses in the book of John that inspire us, but they also ought to wake us up. In John 15 verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. What Jesus is saying here is if they hated me, you cannot expect anything else. And sometimes I wonder, are we too cozy with the world? Jesus made it crystal clear here. We can't miss it. They, he said he, the world hated him, and they're going to hate us as well. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. We go on to John chapter 17, verses 14 to 16. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, you cannot miss the heartbeat of Jesus Christ in this chapter as he pours out his heart to the Father just before things change and he he begins his path toward the loneliness and the cruelty and the death on the cross. But John 17 verse 14, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. There's something there for us to note. He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. That that kind of setting and scenario has been in place since the Garden of Eden. God could have chose to keep that tree away from the Garden of Eden where there was no temptation there. But he chose to keep it there and give clear instructions. And Jesus here is praying. I'm not, he's saying, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then in John 16, verse 33, the Bible says these, Jesus spoke these words as well. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, how many of us struggle to understand the concept of the two kingdoms as we read just those couple verses from the book of John? There's so many other verses we could turn to and we could talk about. But I'd like to turn now to the epistle of of 2 Corinthians where the apostle Paul picks this up as well. And he writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, perhaps the clearest passage we find on separation. 
Second Corinthians 6, verse 11, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And Brother Davy read from John from the first part of the book of John, and then he went over to the next chapter, chapter 2, where it says, Therefore, and here's another therefore, it says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And there's a whole message in these verses, and the message is this, that God is calling us to come out of darkness into light, out of the old man and into the new man, out of the old way of doing things and the old way of thinking of things, and coming to be a new man in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and he gives some of the most beautiful promises you find in the scriptures. He said, if you're willing to separate yourself from the world and unto me, then I'm going to be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. But I love the verse in in chapter 7, verse 1, where there's something I think we need to take note of. It says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. From all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now today there's a message being promoted that we can be separated unto God without doing much with our flesh. We can just kind of keep living the way we want to as long as we believe right. I wonder how that looks to God. God is calling for a clear separation. How many of you have ever worked in gravel where... Something wasn't done right, and and maybe I'm revealing the way we have done things sometimes up there. But you're working in gravel, and this grass has crept in there, and and now you're trying to figure out what's supposed to be grass and what's supposed to be gravel, and you're trying to get this grass out of there, and how much easier would it have been if the two had not mixed in the first place? We don't like things that mix that are not supposed to mix, and God doesn't like things that mix that are not supposed to mix. And God's people are called to separate. Be ye separate. And I know it's not popular at times. Or pleasant. But I believe there's times we need to take this literally. It's the Greek word aphorizo. Or again, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But it has the idea of to set off by boundary, exclude, sever. And, and you know, that, that's not a popular message. We're supposed to all just kind of get along. And even when people are trying to pull us wrong directions with wrong influences, we're, we're supposed to just kind of get along together. But the Bible would call us to separate. And the Bible promises these things. And it's not an unconditional promise. 
We must remember that it's not an unconditional promise. First God lays out what's supposed to happen, and then comes the promises, and it's no different for you and I today. First comes the obedience, then comes the promise. We cannot claim the promise without applying ourselves to the obedience. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And there's that word conformed. But the Bible uses it in a negative sense. It says, be not conformed. That has the idea of to fashion alike, to conform to the same pattern, to fashion self according to. And the only other place, I understand the other place that that word is used, and it's, it's not, word, not used with the word conform, but it's in 1 Peter 1.14 where it says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves, the very same idea, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts, <clears throat> excuse me, in your ignorance. But let's go back and think a little about that. There's something in both these passages. In, in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, verse 1, where it says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And here it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's both. We're not to be conformed to the world, and we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And tonight, we need both. You employers that are here, what would you say of an employee? You told them how to do something, and they went and they did it completely wrong, but they said, I was thinking right. I had the right thing in my mind. You'd say, no, you didn't. Because if you had the right thing in your mind, it would have showed up in the way you did it. But that very message is being proclaimed today. We can be separated as long as we just believe right. As long as we think right. Well, tonight, if we're really thinking right, it's going to show up in the way we live. And I believe it's going to show up as a separation. I thought about this as I thought about the, the statements that come sometimes, and, and, and it's amazing how, you know, you might approach somebody and you might point out something, and, and you know, well, I hadn't even thought about it. I, I wasn't trying to pattern after anything. We work with CNC equipment. Uh, at the print shop, we have a laser, and, and there's a lot of different CNC equipment that's in different places. Some you cut with a knife, and some with this laser, and but it's amazing how intricate and detailed that laser or that knife can get as it cuts out and, and, and you come up with a, with a piece that you just wonder, how could it do all that fine work? You know how? It had a pattern to follow. If you and I end up like the world, we're following the wrong pattern. We need to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. We need to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. But there's a question that comes to us tonight from God's word. And maybe we'll turn back to John 17 again. As we think about courageous leadership in proclaiming God's principles in society. And the question that comes to us from John 17, where we again refer back to the fact that Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. The question that comes to us tonight 
is the question, can we be in the world without being of it? Can we be in the world without being of it? Many people have asked that question, and they've proven no, they couldn't. But the question is, can we safely rub shoulders with society? And we'll get to some points a little later where we talk about promoting God's principles in society and how are we doing at promoting those principles, but can we safely rub shoulders in society and not become like the world? Jeremiah 10, chapter 2, the first part of the verse, it says, Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen. God's message has been so clear. It's been clear in the Old Testament. It's clear in the New Testament. God wants his people to think differently. God wants his people to live differently. And again, the question, can we be in the world without being of it? And as we think about this leadership and how we've We've looked at leadership and we've looked at the fact we were introduced by Brother Jonathan the first evening by the fact that that there have to be followers and we have to, to listen to Jesus' voice. Jesus said that he's the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice and they follow him. And you think about the fact that God is taking us from this world to heaven and, and the only way through that is going to be through a world that Jesus said they're going to hate you. They're not going to understand the principles. And I wonder tonight, how well do you and I understand the principles? This world is going to be full of attitudes and mindsets that God does not want his people to pick up. Attitudes and mindsets that God behooves us to avoid. And it's going to be full of things that are not going to be good for Christians. And you know, we've been reminded of what can happen. As you think about the fact that Jesus said the world is going to hate you, many of you probably followed that case with with Timo Miller and and Ken Miller and, and what happened when they were both put in prison. You know, the world came through with a hatred. We don't like this because what you're saying the Bible is what you're saying the Bible is clear on doesn't feel good to us. Are you and I ready to take our stand? Or are we slowly, slowly getting assimilated into society? I believe with all my heart tonight, they still need to see something different. They still need to see something different. You know, print shops can face... Things I've wondered a little what would happen if I was asked to print something that, in fact, we've had to take a little stand, but not in a, not in a sense of the world pressing in with things that we couldn't print, but a customer that had beliefs we couldn't support or I, I couldn't conscientiously reproduce the things for him. He was very respectful. But, you know, there have been bakeries that, that have gotten requests to bake cakes for weddings that you and I can't support. Are we taking our stand and... And you know, these things can look like something that's so far off and, and something that we're not, we don't really have to worry with now. And, and, and if we're not careful, we start compromising and we, we miss the little tests that come. And I'm afraid that compromise now will mean compromise later. Are we taking the stand that God wants us to take? 
Or are we learning the ways of the heathen? And you think about separation tonight. We as conservative Anabaptists find ourselves in a unique position. Because it's been our practice to have an outward appearance. We ask for an outward appearance that has a separation from the world. And I'm convinced and I hope all of us are convinced tonight that that's the biblical way. You know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know of no groups that have done away with that. Done away with, with having an outward expression that, that reminds us that we're different from the world and have kept from being assimilated into the world. If you know of a case, tell me about it afterwards. But I know of no case. Church after church after church has tried to get away from that and so sadly, you see them becoming more and more and more assimilated into, into politics and into all kinds of things in the world. And separation starts getting broken down. And it's a sad case to be. But while I believe with all my heart that that approach is biblical, that we need to keep taking stands, that we need to, to keep an outward separation, we need to keep nonconformity, there's groups that, that as you look at them and as you look at some of the things they're doing and, and some of the things they're not concerned about, you know, we need the complete package. And that's the separation that God calls for. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says of the flesh and spirit. And in Romans chapter 12 where it says we're to have a renewed mind and we're to be transformed. And I believe if we think that we can be conservative Anabaptists and, and as long as everything looks okay, it's not that big a deal if we kind of fudge here and there, I don't think that could be further from the truth. I think we ought to have a, a renewed vision of the fact that when I profess something outwardly, I need to be double sure that it happens on the inside. That's what Jesus was so against when Jesus came on the scene and the Pharisees were saying, well, you know, we're... We're Moses' children, and, and we kind of have everything together. And He said, you know, you're, you're full of dead men's bones. You're white at sepulchers. He had all kinds of things. In fact, there's a passage, and I don't think we're going to turn to it, but there's a passage where I believe at least nine times he refers to them as hypocrites. And tonight I wonder, as we think about being out in society, rubbing shoulders with society... Are we leaving a true picture that God wants us to leave? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, He says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Very, very clear. And the question comes tonight, what was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? It was a righteousness that they had decided, this is righteousness. They had established it from their own stand, standard. And Jesus said, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. If our righteousness is not lining up with the word of God that will one day judge us, then, then Jesus' words would be for us, we will in no case enter in to the kingdom of heaven. 
And I wonder, does my life and conduct speak of a person living a separated life? Can I safely rub shoulders with the world, courageously stand up and stand strong for God's principles, or am I succumbing to the pressures of society? I'll tell you, friends, we need to pay attention to what the Bible is saying. I'd like to think about some things that that it seems like sometimes we struggle with as Anabaptists. These are just several of many things that could be mentioned. I'm not going to try to cover them all, but I believe we'd like to look tonight at at some of the things that are important for us as we think about a separated life and lifting up God's principles in society. And the first one I have is habits. I heard a story years ago of someone who remembers a deacon who used to, he used tobacco. But you know, at council meeting time, he'd make sure everything was just right, just so. And it's only one of many cases. I I think I spoke of this at youth conference, but we had the tragic happening some years ago about a plain minister, an Anabaptist minister, that was arrested and he had been living in moral sin for, I believe, 30 years. Finally, in his upper 70s or maybe 80, he was arrested. He'll probably spend the rest of his days in jail. And then we think, what are, what are our habits? I know what habits can be, whether it's in speech, in thoughts, attitudes, places we tend to go that we really wouldn't want people to see us there, things we tend to do that we wouldn't want people to see us. And tonight, if there's sinful habits in our lives, let's not hide them. Let's confess them. And it's much better to bring them to light now than wait till Jesus Christ brings them to light at his appearing. And friends, he's not going to miss anything. I trust as we've thought about the fact that God is taking us from this world to heaven, that, that we've We're fully convinced of that message. Jesus Christ is not going to miss anything. John chapter 3 verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And notice something here. It says, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light. How much better for that minister to come to his senses instead of thinking, well, you know, maybe I can get victory over this or or this goes on and on and, and more and more and more people are hurt until finally somebody else exposes the sin. And today he's in prison and I'm not trying to tear anybody down. I think it was commendable. I believe he apologized to those he had hurt and and used in awful ways. But friends, how much better tonight if there's things in our lives, if there's habits that, that we've learned from the heathen. You know, if you're around filthy and worldly language all the time, it's not that hard to pick up that habit. 
If you're around people that are making light gestures about moral things or about about things that should not be thrown around in a casual way at all, it's not hard to learn the way of the heathen. What are we doing with the call that God says you must be separate? One day I'm going to come and the Bible says Jesus said that he's going to come and as the shepherd, shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, that's how Jesus is going to divide things and he's going to make no mistakes. There's going to be a great separation and God calls us to take it to heart today so that we're going to be found at the, great, at the right side of the separation when Jesus Christ returns. What about manners? What kind of principles are we lifting up in society with manners? And I think this is better in the South than it is in the North. Maybe I shouldn't have put this one in my notes. But I've heard enough that, that it's troubling to me because I, talked, I heard of a girl that, that would answer the phone and, and she said the one day she got a compliment from a non-Anabaptist. Somebody had called in, placed an order, and she got a compliment from him. And you know the comment she made? She said, some of the most unpleasant people I deal with on the phone are Anabaptists. You know, how sad. There's people that go to restaurants and it seems like they think the most important thing about that trip to the restaurant is to make sure the waitress gives me the kind of service that I deserve. And if she doesn't, she and others are going to hear about it. And if she does, I might say thank you and I might not. Are we really different from society? Are we really separated from society? They understand that perfectly. Society is all about our rights and it's getting more and more so where if my rights are trampled on, I'm going to sue you. Well, we don't sue, but what do we do? You know, I had this experience in a mission setting, and again, I want to be discreet and careful, but I walked into a guest house in a mission setting, and there was about four Anabaptist youth sitting there engaged in all kinds. They, they had their computer and all these kind of things, and you know what? If I wouldn't have walked up to one of them and stuck out my hand, they would have completely ignored us. You know, what are our manners like? The Bible says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. What kind of gospel are we portraying out in society? What do my manners and demeanor tell others about my Lord? You know, Jesus, one of the, one of the things that inspires me most about Jesus is the fact that his focus was not on himself. He wasn't constantly thinking about what he was supposed to get and didn't get or, or what was supposed to happen for him and didn't happen. In fact, you find him in some of the most difficult and painful experiences. And you know, some of the, the times he would see others, he'd say, peace be unto you. Instead of waiting for them to say, peace be unto you. Yeah, our manners will come up far short of what God wants if we're constantly thinking about ourselves. What about bill-paying habits? 
Have we learned the way of the heathen? The first night I said, I, I repeated a quote that was said over this pulpit years ago. I'm going to do another one tonight. Because I remember this from revival meetings years ago. Where a feed elevator owner came to a minister of a congregation and said, Hey, I'd like to preach to your people on Sunday. The minister said, Oh, really? What would you preach? He said, People pay your bills. Maybe us as ministers need to beat him to it. But I've heard horror stories of people that have left others sit with tens of thousands of dollars. And I understand things can get very, very difficult. I understand that. We've had people that, that had a problem paying us, and, and they might call and say, you know what, it's going to be about two weeks late. No problem at all. I think that's what God calls us to. Go talk to people. We all have times when things get difficult, but go talk to people. I just talked to a man who came home from the mission field. And he somehow got involved in an, with another Anabaptist in a business deal. And by the time it was all over, he was left holding a bag for $60,000. Where does the golden rule come in? I'm concerned about the way we view business. We want to get to that in a little bit. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, verses 27 to 28, Withhold not good from whom it is due when it is in thy, the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again, and tomorrow I will give when thou hast it by thee. Have we learned the way of the heathen? I trust we have not. What about anger? Maybe there's nobody here that struggles with anger. I know what anger is. I used to struggle with it pretty badly as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old. And I wish I could tell you I have complete victory over it. But the Bible tells us in James, says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you with all malice. It's one of the thin sins we have thought is pretty easy to hide. Just a couple more verses, James 1, 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And you know, anger, I don't know if you've, you've observed people that get angry, but it's not a very nice picture. Where they lose control of their emotions. And it's vengeful. It's an emotional expression that is often vengeful. And it often indicates that there's areas, there's circumstances that we have not surrendered to the Lord. We talked this morning a little about leaders 
that are supposed to stay calm and patient and, and work through things in a calm way. And I believe the Bible calls us to that. I'm reminded of the time when, and you know, anger can be so irrational. We left for a school program, and, and this is revealing something again, and this is something we're working on. But we've struggled, and I maybe especially me, have struggled with not allowing enough time from the time you leave home to the time when you want to be there, which shouldn't be two minutes before starting time. But this was a case where we were going to a school program and we had not allowed enough time and somehow somebody in front of me decided it's not necessary to drive over 40 miles an hour. And you know, my family saw me get frustrated, get angry. Until all at once I was reminded, you know, it really isn't his fault. If I would have left when I should have left, he probably wouldn't have been there yet. He might have still been in the next town up somewhere. But anger can be so irrational. And we think somehow we can fix things with anger. And the, the fact is we're going to destroy things with anger. We're going to do tremendous damage with anger. Let's not learn the way of the heathen. And what about honesty and integrity in business? Are there people among us, and I'm afraid the answer is yes, and I hope there's nobody here tonight that this would come into, but I'm afraid there's people that, that have gotten ahead because they've been willing to do shady things that are not ethical, that are not honest. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What are we doing out in the business world as we rub shoulders with people whose intent is to get ahead, whose intent is, you know, if we have to be a little dishonest, that's okay. After all, this is business. If we have to kind of twist things, and I, can, I have a feeling anybody to, in here that's in business can tell you there are times when that temptation and that opportunity is there to twist things a little to bring things into my favor. And I wonder sometimes if we've learned the way of the heathen. And I wonder, too, sometimes, what is our aim? Is our aim to get ahead at all costs? Or is our aim to be honest and fair and, and have deal with, work with integrity in business? I once heard of an Anabaptist man who was overhauling a tractor to sell. I say Anabaptist. I'm not positive it was an Anabaptist. But I heard this story related in a Sunday school class. He was overhauling a tractor to sell, and when it was about ready to sell, he asked the guy who was working on the overhauling, he said, hey, is this tractor uh, identical externally to another tractor that's worth more money? And the man said, yes. And he said, well, then get me the decals for the more expensive one. You know, again, where does the golden rule come in? You and I have a prime opportunity, and I, I'd like to just say this tonight as we think about honesty and integrity in business. Somehow we've tended to kind of put business, and, and you'll, you'll, we probably have all read this, where some people think it's just all good, and, and, and we should 
We should go after it with, with a lot of energy, and others say, well, no, it's very, very dangerous, and we should just stay away from it if we can. But I wonder tonight if we've somehow forgotten. In fact, I wish I would have brought an article along, and I didn't, but it was an article from Indonesia that spoke about Indonesia. Maybe you read the article. But it was an article that said that there was maybe a Mennonite mission that started there, and they started trying to win people, and there was a Muslim mission that started up there, and they started setting up shop, and they started talking to people and rubbing shoulders with people, and, you know, they were a lot more successful than the Christians were. And I wonder sometimes, have we forgotten the opportunity that we can have to show people Jesus Christ in the way we do business? You know, frugality is a noble trait, and, and it's been promoted so hard. Sometimes I'm afraid it's been promoted to an unhealthy sense in our circles where, where we say, well, you know, you need to be frugal, and if you can find a way to kind of swing things in, things in your favor and you end up with an extra $100, well, that's being frugal. Friends, we better call it what it is. That's being dishonest. I'm reminded of the time I went to Canada to buy a machine, and this just tells us how this thing works, where the world understands dishonestly, perfectly. This machine, if I remember right, cost me $5,000. And as the man, we had to cross the border as we came back in, and the man said, okay, now I'm going to give you two receipts. I'm going to make the first one for $4,000 and the second one for $1,000, so you have it for your bookwork at home. But when you get to the border, you just show them the receipt for $1,000, because I had to pay taxes and duties on this machine they don't have to know they'll never know I said just give me a receipt for $5,000 and I had a two where I ordered something I forget was it online or over the phone and the person said now we're just gonna you just mark this as a gift when you pay you just mark it as a gift because that's gonna keep you from paying taxes on this when you just mark it as a gift and and they don't have to know the truth Friends, God knows the truth. And what is our salvation going to be worth when Jesus Christ comes back on the scene? Is it really only going to be worth $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever it takes? What's it going to be worth when Jesus Christ comes back on the scene? And I'd like to just ask us this question yet, because I think sometimes the world understands this better than we do, that there's two parties involved in business transactions. We as Anabaptists forget it sometimes. We come away rejoicing and kind of patting ourselves on the back because we got the better end of the deal, forgetting about the person that was on the other end of the deal. That same article that talked about Indonesia also talked about a man that stopped one time. He decided he was going to buy a used tool, and he stopped at a widow's yard sale, and she had the very tool he wanted. It was used. I think he was expecting to pay $300 for it. She had it marked at $25 because she had no idea what it was worth. And this man told her, you know, that tool is worth a lot more than $25, and he paid her $300 for the tool. Now, do you think when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to miss that $275? No. And as you and I are faced with opportunities to shed the light of Jesus Christ in society, let's be careful that we come across honest and fair, and we rejoice when somebody else gets a good deal. 
Jesus said the way you want men to treat you is the way you should treat them. This morning in Sunday school, we started a discussion. There's another one I'd like to think about, and that is this whole thing of politics and voting and participation in war and being pressured to fit into the world's mold. You know, friends, tonight I believe it's been a tremendous blessing that we've been taught that we need to stay free from politics. There's Christians today that sadly, as you look at them, as you look at their philosophies, as you listen to their speech, they've become convinced that the answers for us, keeping on the way we want to and the way God wants us to, the answers for that lie in Washington, and I'm here to say they do not. They lie right here. And you know, the world, I saw this firsthand. I was next to a man that was at a bank, and I have no idea if he professed Christianity or not, but he was in a state of panic, being afraid Hillary Clinton was going to be our next president. Now, that's been completely free from Mennonite circles, right? Learn not the way of the heathen. And when they decide, you know what, if this and this person gets into office, we're doomed. We don't have to buy that. Neither do we have to bash the president we have. We're called to respect. We're called to pray. But let's not let our emotions and our hopes somehow get tied up in politics. And people come to us and say, what do you mean you don't vote? You're being an irresponsible citizen. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Will we continue to stand and be courageous? And I think the question that came up this morning is somebody was challenged, you know, why don't you vote? I think a fair question would be to them, would we want the government to come help us with our ordinations? You know, if, if, this, if the two kingdoms are not separate and if we help them and tell them how they should run their kingdom, why shouldn't we let them come tell us how we should run ours? Doesn't it cut both ways? Well, there's a lot of others. There's so many ways that you and I can be lights in fact, I think I had this somewhere in my notes and missed it, but there's, a, there's another one I'd like to just think about briefly. What about praying in public? And maybe there's nobody here that struggles with it, but you know, as we do rub, rub shoulders with society, we'll find ourselves in situations at times where we know they probably won't understand. In fact, I've been with salesmen that you look up after praying and they're sitting there looking bored and indifferent kind of like, But friends, let's not compromise our Christianity. Let's, let's ask God to give us a new courage, a new way, a new vision, or a new sense of needing to be courageous in society, to stand up for him, not in a brash and in a harsh way that says, you know, I'm better than you are. And, Come on, you should know this or you should be doing it. No, not in that way at all but in a way that speaks Jesus Christ to those we rub shoulders with. There's a lot of others, including marriage and family. 
You know, I'm sure you with me have gotten into situations and it seems like they get worse and worse and worse. How many children do you have? Well, we have two and I have one from before and she has two from before and it's a sad, sad situation. That marriage has gotten so trashed, and we talked the first night about families and about the blessing that families are and the blessing that children are. God help us. Let's not let's not apologize for the fact that we're followers of Jesus Christ. And let's not be ashamed of him. The Bible tells us if we're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of us when he returns. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, there's a sobering verse as we think about the fact that Jesus Christ will return and the fact that Jesus Christ will not have missed anything. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or or bad. There's something that we, we talked a little about Ken Miller and Timo Miller and some of these people that all at once have found themselves in very public settings, in courtrooms, and the decisions they made are spelled out. There's lawyers spelling these things out and that they're telling a jury how ridiculous this was and, and how they violated the laws of the land. You know, you and I might be called into those situations sometime as well, and I wonder where we'll stand. But when it comes to Jesus Christ coming back in this verse, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, there's no maybe about it. It's going to happen. One day Jesus Christ will return. And we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ or appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will have missed nothing. In closing for the weekend, I'd like to turn back to Ezekiel, chapter 22. I recently read through the book of Ezekiel, and this portion kind of gripped me because there's a verse here that as we talk about being courageous, there's, there's a verse here in this passage. We'd like to read uh, verses 23 to 31, but there's a verse here that grips me because I wonder... Where are we tonight? Where are we tonight? And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land. This is verse 23, 24. Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor rained upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. We could turn to different places in Ezekiel, but God lists a catalog of sins. And you know what? There's a catalog of sins today as well. There's a catalog of things that are going on in society, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society. There's a catalog of things that we're being faced with. We're being bombarded with verse 26 her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things they have put no difference between the holy and the profane neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my sabbaths and i am profaned among them her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God when the Lord hath not spoken. 
The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And verse 30 is the verse that grips me. And I think we ought to ask ourselves a couple questions. One is, is God still seeking for men? The Bible says after this catalog of sins and the things that were going on in society, it says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. And again, i just like to repeat the phrase there, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me. I wonder tonight, is God going to find us too busy playing, too busy distracted, too busy going after things that will not last for eternity? Or will he still find men that are willing to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge and stand in the gap? May that question stay on our hearts. As we think about society that God has put us in, the time God has chosen for us to live upon this earth, will we be willing to make up the hedge and stand in the gap? in our homes, in our churches, and in society. God bless you and keep you. May you continue faithful to the Lord.